Welcome to the Ian Bowsfield Experience. I'm glad you're here. This series of podcasts are just things that come up in my mind when I'm thinking about playing, when I'm thinking about teaching, and general thoughts about music. There are some things here that I hope you'll find really useful. And don't forget, if you've got any comments or if there's anything you want to discuss further, go to ianbowsfield.com. Hello, nice to be speaking to you again. Um, This question and answer session um, is made up of questions from two people because the questions were so good, I decided to do a whole podcast on it. We'll get to that in a minute. Just a bit of office work before we start. If you follow me on Facebook, um, I'm getting kind of blocked. So please um, try and follow the official Facebook page, not my personal profile. And especially um, try and follow me on Instagram at Ian Bowsfield Official. Another thing that you may be interested in is that um, the fantastic recording of Stargazer um, is now released, which you can hear wherever you um, listen on Spotify, iTunes, etc. I recorded it um, almost two years ago with um, the band of the Belgian Air Force conducted by the magnificent Matty Sillison. Um, it's not often that I'm proud of something that I've done, and I mean that quite genuinely. I never listen to my recordings, and uh, I'm always embarrassed when I go back to listen to something from 20 years ago. Um, but I am really proud of this. I'm very proud for us as um, trombone players that um, Jonathan Dove has even written a piece for us. Um, I gave the first performance a long time ago with the London Symphony and Michael Tilson Thomas, and this is the premier recording A of the piece at all, but um, with wind band. So take a listen to that and um, let me know what you think to it. Um, I'd be very interested to hear your feedback. I think it's one of the best pieces ever written for trombone. It um, bridges that wonderful um, gap of being, on the one hand, a serious piece of music, and on the other hand, being listenable. <laughs> Unfortunately, too many of the pieces written for us these days seems to seem to be one or the other. <laughs> anyway, okay, now, question number one is from Bill Stanley, Professor Bill Stanley trombone professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder and an old family friend. Um, And he asks, Bill is asking about the amount of time needed to prepare excerpts. And he said he's trying to come to grips with the American system where it's expected that an excerpt preparation for a specific audition has to involve hundreds of repetitions. And he recalls a conversation that we had, um, you know, where we, we, we discussed that situation. And would this be a good um, topic for a podcast? Yep, Bill, it is. It's a great one. Um, I started my career in the Halle Orchestra. I think I got the job when I was 18 and I was 19 when I started. And um, I, I think the rep- what repertoire did I have to learn for the audition? I think Bolero, I think uh, Hungarian March, Ride of the Valkyries, Tam O'Shanta, which used to be a regular on British auditions in those days, and the Russian Easter Festival, I think. But that was about it. 
So the first time I uh, saw these excerpts was in action, so to say. So I was sitting there in a rehearsal on a Tuesday morning and um, I'd sight read them. I didn't have hours, weeks, years of preparation with someone telling me to play it this way or that way or the other. The only person I had telling me how to play it was the conductor. And um, so, yeah, that was how I learned excerpts. Of course, I think I learned Bolero beforehand. Peter Gain, I remember taking me through, through Bolero. I think the important thing here is that we should not be... I hear some people calling them orchestra studies. They aren't studies. They are not orchestra etudes. They are excerpts from a piece of music, from a work of art. And just simply treating them as a technical exercise will take us further and further and further away from the musical meaning of the excerpt. Um, if you are having trouble with fast articulation, don't practice on William Tell. If you're having trouble with your high register, don't expect to get better by playing Bolero a hundred times. You know, if you're having trouble with clarity of articulation, don't repeat the Mozart Requiem a thousand times. You know, the first couple of measures. Um, if you have technical issues in your playing, which we all do, go and practice it somewhere else. Um, there are the two reasons. One is the one that I've just stated. You're going to take all of the music out and you'll take it out to the point where you'll never get it back in again. And the other is, and this I find very often in my teaching room, is I find somebody who will play me a magnificent Tomasi concerto or a Creston and then they play let's say, for example, the first phrase of the David or the Mozart Requiem, and all of a sudden the 16-year-old who was struggling to play those excerpts re-enters the room when they're 22 or 23 years old. The, the memory, the ghost of the previous player, the person with those technical issues returns. And so I <laughs> might surprise my students, but I don't like teaching excerpts. Because my class is largely a master's class and I've got people really, most of my class is on the verge of a professional career, I do tend to spend a lot of my life with the first movement of the David and about 12 different excerpts. And it's against my philosophy, but hey, you've got to do it at some point. But that's the point at which you should really be doing it. Um, you know, looking on this system of auditions, I think there should really be a Ferdinand David amnesty until a student is, you know, a year away from taking auditions at the very earliest. Otherwise, we're really stuck with this. You know, a, a kid learns at age 12, 14, 16, 20, and there's always ghosts of the previous technical problems in there. And that counts for all of the excerpts as well. Um, I remember, I remember, um, I don't know whether it's still in there, but the ITF, ITA magazine, I apologise, had um, orchestral excerpts um, section. And every week they would ask two or three <laughs> different people 
about how to approach and how to play certain excerpts. And I have to say, it was not, as we say in England, it was not my cup of tea. How you can write four pages on playing the Mozart Requiem, I don't know, but some people managed it. And I remember there was one about how to play um, William Tell, I think it was. And they asked, I can't remember who it was now, so I don't know, bass trombone playing the Kalamazoo Philharmonic. Who knows? It was an American orchestra. And, and, and there, was, there was pages of it. And um, the next person that they'd asked was Andrea Conti. The great Andrea Conti, first trombone in Santa Cecilia in Rome. Uh, an old friend of mine. And he wrote, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but he basically wrote, learn to play the trombone, learn Italian repertoire, learn Italian musicality, and then play William Tell. Finished. <laughs> and that tends to be my attitude towards it. Um, now, I am not saying to you that before an audition, I only ever did two auditions in my life, but before my audition for the Vienna Philharmonic, I would not like to tell you how many thousands of times I repeated Bolero. Um, and Mahler Three and Mozart Requiem, and the first one, the David. I set about it six months before the audition, and I hammered those things. I really did. There was no way I was going to make a mistake. But listen, this is the end of the process. This is the very, very, very end of the process. I hadn't spent... I was 35 years old. I hadn't spent the rest of my life before that playing that. It was like, this is the Olympics. This is the ultimate. Can I stand there and deliver all of these things? Um, and I hadn't spent the remainder of my life before that doing that at all. Um, and it, it, it pains me to see a 15 or 16-year-old student turn up to a master class wanting to play the Mozart Requiem, you know? It's like, go and do some Arben song, or daughter. <laughs> you know, I... Um, Peter Steiner came for a lesson a while ago. Peter, I hope you don't mind me saying that. And um, I was really fascinated to... I wanted to interview him in front of my class. It seemed like a good idea. I never realised it was a brilliant idea because, as you've seen with my podcast interviews uh, or the one with Rex so far, it's unusual to have an interview where the person giving the, hosting the interview is actually an authority on the subject and knows how to steer the conversation in the right directions. And I wanted, because Peter is closer to the age of my students. I wanted him to talk to them about what it was to be a, a, a student. And um, he talked about the system he had with Joe Alessi, which was basically going... And then playing Bordonis in, uh, with different clefts. And then playing scales and arpeggios. And then you win a job. Which is what happened. Because if you can play all of that stuff perfectly, an orchestra, an orchestra audition is bloody easy. If you can play Bordonis down the octave, in tenor clef, up the octave, you can play 
Mahler three, you can play bolero. If you can go dun ta ta dun 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 ta ta dun ta perfectly. The first couple of measures of Mozart Requiem is easier for you. Don't learn those things on the excerpts. So that's my basic modus operandi, so to speak. Um, now the other thing about how, so I've told you how not to do it. <laughs> how do we do it? Well, first of all, and I've said this many times before, if you're having a problem with something, take that technical aspect out of the excerpt and go and work on it. Go and fix it. Don't fix it on the excerpt. Now, here's the other thing. And here, I think, is the real secret to playing excerpts. When, when an orchestra does an audition, there's a group of people looking to find a new colleague. That means they're looking for somebody who's going to speak their language, the language of music, the language of music in that orchestra. If you don't know, if you don't understand intuitively the whole of Brahms' first symphony, how on earth can you play that chorale like it's the chorale from Brahms' first symphony? There's only one thing in the whole musical um, spectrum that sounds like that. In the history of music, there's only one thing that sounds like that. If you don't understand the journey of that piece to get to the chorale, don't expect it to sound like Brahms. You make that sound like Brahms and they're going to say, welcome, dear colleague. If you are going to play Mahler's Third Symphony, I mean, and I experience, I very often will, before I work on an excerpt with someone, I'll, I'll sing something and they'll say, do you know what that is? And they'll say, no. And they'll say, well, it's the second theme in the first movement that's in the clarinets. And then it goes into the cellos. Don't you know that? And, and the answer to that 99 times out of 100 is no. Um, so if you understand the time of Mahler, what it was to be Gustav Mahler, how he came to write that solo, then you can, then you can play Mahler 3. Yeah, you can. Um, so understanding the musicality of it, having the technique of it, and then playing it. So I'm basically, I'm quoting Andrea Conti, aren't I? Understand the music. Understand the piece, command your instrument, and play the excerpt. Um, now, the, the, the other and final piece in the jigsaw, as far as learning excerpts is concerned, is um, knowing your target audience, knowing what your market is. There are some very prominent teachers who say, what I do is my lifetime's work, what I do I believe to be right, I'm going to teach my students to do that, and, you know, I'm going to play, they're going to play for every audition like this, and if they don't like it, they don't like it. Well, that doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Um, it's not a very good business plan. Um, I, I heard uh, something of, of someone I respect extremely, greatly, uh, Jay Friedman. I'm afraid I disagree with him on this instance, despite me thinking he's a wonderful guy and an absolute monument to first trombone playing. He, I, heard that he, I heard him say to a, to a masterclass audience, 
you know, you're door-to-door salesman and you go, you knock on one door and they don't what you want. They don't want what you've got. So you knock on the next door and you keep getting lots of refusals until you knock on the door and someone says, yeah, I want to buy that. But wouldn't it actually be, um, in fact, no, it is far more successful if you are technically and musically flexible enough to fit to the differences of the orchestra that you're playing to. So I actually disagree with, with what Jay said. I think one of the reasons for the not inconsiderable success of the students in my class is I prepare them definitely for an audition in Germany, in certain parts of Germany. In diff- in, you know, are, you in, are we in Old East Germany? Are we in Dresden? Are we in, you know, are we in Frankfurt? Are we in Munich? Are we in Vienna? You know, these are all slightly different approaches. Now, I don't have the magic formula to all of that, but I do attempt to try and respect the style of the individual orchestras. And that fits very much into other podcasts that I've done. If I prepare someone for an audition in Scandinavia, that's quite different. So far, I've had very little experience of preparing people for American auditions. Um, I would, I'd be fascinated to learn more about what it takes, what the code is that needs to be cracked. It's probably the same stuff as it is in Europe. Um, although I have given lessons to many um, American players who are now sitting in very top jobs. Um, I've never been their main teacher and prepared them for that specific audition. Um, So those are my feelings on that, Um, Bill Stanley. Looking forward to seeing you again. Um, Thank you for that question. I hope that helps. And the next mountain I have to climb is (laughs) a series of fantastic questions um, from Ingrid van Oosterhout. Ingrid, I um, have probably just butchered your name. I apologise very much, but I I, I tried. Um, You've written some fantastic questions here. In fact, I could probably do a whole podcast just on these. You say you're not a professional player. Um, You're a product manager of occupational health services, and you're a mother and manager manager to a talented bass trombone player, composer, Pella Vanesh. Pella, hi, how are you? Yes, I remember you. Um... Now, then the first question is on his behalf. Do I think competing in competitions is a good way to develop skills as a soloist? Until now, Pelo has mainly competed in the Netherlands and got to choose his own repertoire. In international competitions, it seems that artistic freedom is more limited, and frankly, personally, you don't enjoy to listen to the same pieces over a thousand times. Yeah, Ingrid, don't go to a brass band competition. Um, Okay, well, that's a good opportunity to look at competitions. The the simple answer to your question is yes. Do I think competing in competitions is a good way to develop skills as a soloist? Yes, I do. I think it's a good way of developing yourself full stop. Um, I've had the experience of seeing students really, really move forward because of the exertions of having to... Um, prepare a certain list of repertoire, repertoire. It's really brought them forwards. Um, I've had some very strong recent experiences of this, even though they've had um, um, diabolical um, um, results in the in the competitions. Um, and that's not now. Bear in mind, this is not someone speaking from sour grapes. My student did win the ARD competition last time, so. That's <laughs> 
Um, yes, it does. It make, it pushes you. It gets you to learn different repertoire. I think at this point, it's really important to point out that in the in the modern history of trombone playing, there has actually only been one soloist, Christian Lindbergh. Fantastic. The rest of us are all amateurs. The rest of us are all either orchestral players who play solos or teachers who play solos. You know, I think if you're earning, let's say, 60-70% of your money from playing solos, then you're a soloist. And I don't know many of us who are in that position. Um, actually, thinking about it, I might be getting close to that, but I don't think... No, I would not describe myself as, you know, what's my occupation, trombone soloist. So why are we having all of these solo competitions? Why is becoming a trombone soloist so important? Um, it seems to me that in many cases there are a lot more important things for young players to be concentrating on, like becoming the best musician they can be and you know having control of the basic um, technique of, of their instrument. Um, so you can probably tell I'm a little disenfranchised with, with competitions because there seems to be this split between those who prepare students for solo competitions and those who prepare them for a professional career. And I say that quite clearly. Um, I never took part in a solo competition. Well, I, well, the London Symphony Scholarship, I suppose, when I was 15, you could count as that. But the main sort of like trombone competitions, I never did any of that. And I've been very successful as a soloist. That goes for Peter Moore. Um, I, I hope... I don't I hope you won't mind me saying this, but um, the principal trombone in the New York Philharmonic went out in the early rounds of the ARD competition. The principal trombone in the Vienna Philharmonic went out in the early rounds of the ARD competition. Something's going seriously wrong when that happens. And um, for so in English, Ingrid, as you can see, what you have done is opened a can of worms. I am not against competitions at all. I am in favour of them. I think they're great, but I think the way they're taking place is, needs a lot of addressing. So we have this system where people are being trained to become soloists, but nobody's going on to become a soloist. I mean, it's all very good. My student won this competition, my student won that competition, but, you know, the follow-up, five years later, ten years later, does your student, you know, does your student have a house and a car and a job and a profession? Or they had to kind of like really, later in their career, learn what it is to play in an orchestra um, and learn the different techniques that are required. So I'm a little concerned that competitions um, are taken seriously, but I do think, I do think they're really good for people's, dis, you know, people's development. What I don't like is I don't like preparing people and telling them to accept that losing is part of it. I mean, people say... Yeah, well, I've looked at the jury and they don't like my kind of player, so I'm probably not going to win it. But, you know, I don't like, I don't, I think preparing people for the psychology of defeat is, is not a good thing. I think um, it's important also that I add in a, at this point my experiences of recently sitting on a, um, a very high profile jury um, with my two dear colleagues. Jürgen van Rijn and Christian Lindbergh. 
And because I was chairman of the jury, I was the only one um, who was allowed to see the marks that everybody gave. And I have to tell you, as trombone players, guys, girls, we can be proud of those two guys. They were bloody heroes. I, I was very interested to see how, how they would mark different trombone players, and they were 110% fair and straight down the middle, both of them. Now, the big thing about artistic freedom that, that you ask, that's really a fantastic point. And I'm actually, I'm thinking on my feet here. You know, if competitions were based on presentations, on artistic presentations, I think that would be a massive step forward to check the artistic level um, rather than it being kind of like dressage, you know, in horse jumping, um, where, you know, you have to turn left and then two, three steps forwards and, and you have to play the Tomasi Concerto like this and the Dutier like this and Basta like this. And, you know, it kind of takes the creativity out of the fantasy. Not in every case, but it makes it very, very difficult. And also, um, I find with, with juries and competitions, having sat on quite a few myself, um, it, I've spent my life trying to appreciate and love every different style of trombone playing. Those of you who know my playing will know that I play quite differently from Jürgen van Rijn. I love what he does. And Joe, I was working with Joe last week, I love it. It's quite different to what I do. Michel Becke, I love it. It's wonderful. But my, that has not been my experience that it's been reciprocated always on, on, on juries. Um, and, you know, it's like people tend to get put out of competitions if they don't play the way the people on the jury play. And that, that you know, doesn't sit very well with me. I get that impression. I, uh, I, I, got the, I got a written result once from a French juror who said, this is a solo competition, where's your vibrato? And, you know, for me, it's like, hey, people should have the artistic freedom to play the way they want to play. If it's good, it's good. If it's not, sometimes I play with vibrato, sometimes I don't. Um, I have nothing against it. So I think there's, that's a real mixed bag of my, my thoughts on, on competitions. But you raise an interesting point there, Ingrid, really good. And I've literally just thought about it. If we had rounds of, of competitions where rather than it being jumping through hoops, it was like, what is, your, uh, what, what is a 20-minute artistic presentation? That could be really interesting. Thank you. Question number two from Ingrid, <laughs> and there are quite a few. Which kind of repertoire do I think should be composed for trombone or bass trombone? What links are missing? And how do we get young composers to do this job? Um, well, what links are missing? Most of them, actually. Um, even the tuba's got the Vaughan Williams tuba concerto. The trumpets have got quite a few. The horns are doing quite nicely. We haven't really got very much at all. Um, so the, the links in time... Um, over time, so from the classical romantic period, we've got huge links there that are missing. But I don't, I don't think you can go back and reverse engineer and ask someone to write a romantic trombone concerto now. Um, although, in actual fact, the piece that I've just released, Stargazer, that was born out of this very question, Ingrid, uh, where I, I was talking to Jonathan Dobb and I said, you know, if only Gustav Holst had written something, written something, or Stravinsky or Bernsteiner. You know, we've got nothing. 
And he actually wove in those styles into the piece, which is why it's called Stargazer. We're looking at the galaxy of, of what might have been the galaxy of, of composers. And by the way, those, if you take a look at that, um, I don't normally share things on, on social media about my family, but if you look at the front cover of Stargazer, that little boy pointing at the night sky is my son. Um, and he's very proud of that. <laughs> so how do we... It's, all, it, it's basically it's all missing. We, we haven't really got an awful lot. Um, there have been some very good pieces written. Um, in this time, the Berio Solo, wonderful piece. Um, Takamitsu Phantasmicantos 2, one of the best. Really amazing. Um, I think Stargazer is a good piece. And, you know, depending how far out there you want to go, you know, the, the Zanarchist has written two extraordinary pieces. Um, but as to reverse engineering and getting things dropped in there, you know, like the Haydn trombone concerto or whatever, that, that's difficult. What we can do is we can focus on having um, good pieces written for us now. Um, and how do we get young composers to do this job? Um, well, um, I'm a, a, a wine collector, as some of you may know. Actually, no, I'm not a wine collector, I'm a wine drinker. And um, the only way that I get to drink the greatest wines in the world, which I do, is because I got to know those wine growers when they were up and coming um, people, you know, with, with just of, taking over the family estate or whatever in Burgundy. Um, Jean-Michel Jacob and um, Alan and Sophie Meunier, um, Annick Parent, that sort of thing. Uh, those sort of people that I, I got to know when they were when they were young and but obviously superstars. You know, I was getting tipped off in the right direction where to go. You know, next check out this one, check out this one. And now I, the result is I have this extraordinary um, wine cellar, the like of which I couldn't buy. Now you can see where I'm going with this. You know, so um, so Pella is uh, studying, and there will be a composition department in his conservatoire. And he should hang out with them and drink a coffee and talk to them and talk to the composers about um, his artistic desires and to form partnerships. That's how it happens, is to become friends with these people and to share artistic ideas. And the child of that friendship will be a new piece of music. Now, they're not all going to be good, but some of them are. And so even for someone like Pella, that's possible to do that. You know, don't... Don't wait until an orchestra commissions a concerto for you. Get to know these people when they're practicing, you know, how do I write for the bass trombone? Because they are interested and they're looking for help. What can you do on the bass trombone? What's the range? What are the effects? They always wanted to know. They always want to know what the effects are. I always find it a bit suspicious when, the, when you have a meeting with a composer and the first thing, question they ask is, what weird things can you do with the trombone? Um, and uh, <laughs> that's always quite a bad sign. Um, so that's, that, I think, is something, and that's for everybody out there. You know, make friends with your composer. Try and, local composer, try and see things from their point of view. Um, there's always, these are intelligent people. There's always something of interest in everything that they write. Third question. You've noticed that Great Britain and the Netherlands produce some extraordinary trombone players in comparison to other European countries. Do you have an explanation for that? Huh. 
think Christian Lindbergh might have something to say about that, Ingrid. Uh, Great Britain and Netherlands produce some extraordinary trombone plays. Ha. That's a heck of a question. I'm thinking about the new trombone collective there. And I'm thinking also now about if you look at this new stable of young British trombone players, um, Mike Buchanan, Peter Moore, Matt G, those guys, I think the one thing that they have in common um, is with what the guys in the new trombone collective have done, is it's artistic, it's musical. And so what's producing at the moment these great um, young trombone players is their artistry, not their trombonistic ability. Um, and, I mean, look, there are fantastic trombone players all over the world. The UK and the Netherlands don't have the monopoly on, on producing that. But I can see what you're saying. Actually, I'd never thought about it, but there are quite a lot, aren't there? Historically, there were always a lot of fantastic French um, trombone players. Uh, largely now, they're limited to winning the competitions that they've organised. And I, I love French trombone playing. I think it needs updating a little bit because there are some bloody fantastic young players there. And uh, I don't think, I don't feel that French trombone players are the world leaders that they used to be and could be. I, th I think in America, Wow, what a lot of talent there. But it really is, Ingrid, in, in, in America, it's so focused on practicalities. Like, how are we going to earn money? We're going to earn money in an orchestra. Okay, we're going to learn to play in orchestral repertoire, you know. And they do it incredibly well, incredibly effectively. They're great ensemble players. But they're not, they don't go home and practice solo repertoire as much as they do... Um, orchestral stuff. So there's lots of different reasons like that. Listen, Austria is a massive talent pool. Spain. Actually, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Ingrid, I disagree with you. No, nope, I'm thinking on my feet again here. Hang on. What about Portugal? Per capita, Portugal must be producing the biggest number of really good trombone players um, in the world. And that bit from Valencia down to Murcia in the south coast of, of, of Spain is extraordinary. However, where I would share your opinion is it's those who go on to become great players, those who go on to become the more famous ones. And I think that is where it, it's artistic. Um, so I haven't really answered that bloody question at all, have I? I've, I've given you some rambling thoughts on it. And your last question is about your own practice routine. Um, <laughs> I loved reading this question, I have to say. You've got one hour a day to practice if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> what can you advise me about efficient and effective practice routines for amateurs? Hmm, you mean mine. Um, what should I absolutely do and what should you absolutely not do in six or seven hours practice per week? Okay, I exaggerate. I do practice more than that. But there are times in my life where it's difficult because... Um, I'm a dad, I'm a podcast host, <laughs> I'm involved in business, I teach, I conduct, I play solos, and it, for certain times in my life, 
there are, there are, you know, occasionally it's like a couple of weeks where playing the trombone is not the main focus in my life. You know, if I'm preparing schools or whatever, if I'm coaching. Um, this is the same advice, Ingrid, that I give to everybody. Do what makes you happy. You have to make yourself happy. You have to pick up the trombone and think, you know, thank goodness for that. I don't have to be, you know, a product manager of occupational health services for the rest of today. I can leave all that behind me and just do what I really love. And um, that's, honestly, I do that. I stick to probably 50% of my practice is doing what I love. It's like, wow, that sounds great. I love that. Enjoying what you can do. Enjoying the sound that you make. Um, try and do something very basic, very perfectly, in a very concentrated fashion for a very short period of time. Five minutes, ten minutes. But every day, your version of what excellence, your version of what your perfection is, in articulation, in legato, um, and really make yourself work. And then scales, always scales, detached, legato. Um, and have the same basic etudes that you do. Um, in, in my book, I, I give a, a long description about what I call home exercises. This is the one that I do for my slide technique. This is the one that I do for my legato. This is the one, etc., etc. You know, and it can be three-minute etudes for each thing, but you just hone those aspects of your playing every day. This is what I do for stamina. And then, you know what? This is what I do for fun. So, Ingrid, thank you very much for your amazing questions. Um, and... Um, I dare say you've got a few more for me, judging by this. Look forward to getting them. Okay, bye. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. If there are any issues that you found particularly interesting, don't forget to contact me and always go to uh, ianbowsfield.com for lots more interesting stuff.